The following program may contain content not suitable for all audiences. Welcome to Metagamers Anonymous, program dedicated to tabletop role-playing games and mostly related material, a presentation of Prismatic Tsunami. My name is Eric. I'm Rich. I'm Vanessa. I'm Jeff. And we are here, uh, it's been a while. <laughs> it's, it's fucking but been wait, a while. Where is here? Uh, we are here in cyberspace. We okay. are back on the onlines. We are back on the interwebs, interwebs because uh, it's been a minute. You know, we've, we've, we've had a convention since we did this, and I've slept since the convention a lot. A few times. My yeah. work phone finally stopped ringing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys got out of tax season. That's always a nice bonus. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's got to be kind of a one-two punch, right? You know, you get into tax season and then right into TsunamiCon. So, you know, it's going from like right. a, the, the serious stress low to a really big high, you know? So last week's been super depressive because I haven't had anything to distract myself Con from reality. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> let's, let's make soap. I'm almost out of the soap you made me. Oh, Oh. No lie, but I can order more. Uh, no lie. What? Wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's no cap nowadays. No, I think no, that's no, what the kids no, today no, are saying. You have to put the cap back on, otherwise the lie will get wet and bad things happen. Bad things happen. Yeah, invariably. I think I threw all our lie down the drain. Let's see. Uh, Wait, can lie get... Oh, if you have powdered lie, it gets wet. Okay, okay. I have crystals. Okay. I'm thinking of liquid lye, and I was very confused. Oh, oh, you don't, I don't, oh, no, okay. I don't think I could throw powdered lye down the drain. I don't think it works the same way. No, no, it does with enough water following it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Follow it up with some water. And anytime I think about lye, I think of Fight Club. (laughs) (laughs) We don't talk about (laughs) that. Don't add water to the lye. You add lye to the water, otherwise you get splashy. Not good. Episode number 282, uh, Sympathetic <laughs> Villainy. We're going to talk a little bit about bad guys today. And, oh, uh, good thing we're already into lie. Yeah, yeah, we're already halfway there. <laughs> to, but we don't talk about Fight Club. Wow. Um, I don't know what you're talking about, sir. <laughs> Jess, it That's is only amazing <laughs> to see you and hear you back Thanks. on the show. It has been a minute. Does that and, mean somebody wrote um, a letter? <laughs> that's, that's nobody writes letters yeah. for me to read yeah, nobody writes letters for us to read either it's okay it's like we uh if you are listening we don't mind the letters honestly it's, it's all stopped this last couple of years ever since the pandemic it's like uh the only engagement i get is, is people asking specific questions about stuff it's not about things to talk about on the show which means of course i have to come up with my own fucking topics give which, us content you know, crazy content would content is king uh, <laughs> But you know we can do that. We can we can topic. It's okay. We can topic. Can we talk about how Hasbro is the villain? It, is Hasbro the villain? Uh, they just fired the who used to be the lead guy for uh, Wizards and Dungeons and Dragons. Really? They're doing some oh. restructuring. Yes. Mm-hmm. I I have, about that. Not as much as Twitter. Never know exactly what's behind story. that stuff either. Too. It's, it's, right. Uh, but uh, I'm interested in seeing what happens. I guess and. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's lately, it's, I, everybody's doing this stuff, right? I mean, I think that uh, we are now seeing because of the way the economy has taken a hit, you know, over the last uh, 24 months, we're now seeing a lot of that payoff in areas where so much has changed, and especially in entertainment and disposable dollars, that uh, corporate structures are very much in flux right now. Uh, HBO is just going through their big thing with their Discovery merger, and the new guy that came in is looking to see how many people he can piss off in as short a time as possible. 
You know, it's like, oh, HBO Max, where we have all this. Co- we don't need all that content. That's we don't need that content. That's that's not good. You know, canceling like everything that they were trying, they were working on or, or trying to put out there that people were waiting for. Uh, canceling shows that people had been watching, but not enough people. He's a numbers guy. I so. need to check and make sure that the shows I care about are still going to be a thing. His Dark Materials is still coming out with the third season, the first. Okay, episode. cool. That's what that's, I care about. That's <laughs> the only one that, yeah. And and uh, if you are a listener, if you like House of the Dragon, which is badass, it's still going to be coming back because you know that's that's a moneymaker right now. The big franchises are what he's focusing on. But even like the DC stuff that was supposed to go straight to HBO Max, the the Batgirl movie, of course, we already knew got canceled. We don't know what's happening with the Flash movie. It's in limbo. There was other stuff, a Justice League Dark thing that was being worked on. There were other plans in the works. All that's a lot of that's being axed or is you know put into limbo, put into cold storage. We don't know what's happening. But uh, and, and the CW shows, a lot of that's getting canceled. They canceled Westworld, um, which really? ran its fourth season recently, and I guess I hadn't quite finished season four, so it ended on a like a cliffhanger or something. I haven't finished season two, but I've been meaning to catch up. <laughs> and now, now I'm not sure I want to finish season four. Obviously, I feel like I want to write something. Um, some sort of op-ed out there that, that that points out that we have this, we have changed so much in the way we consume entertainment over the last 10 years that uh, the people that are in the position to make these decisions, I mean, yes, they have to make financially viable decisions for their, their company, their service. But streaming as a model has altered everything. And we no longer forgive content that is left just to flounder. You know, we get into a series or a show, you know, programming, which there's a lot of great TV shows that have been you know, developed during that time that end up getting axed before they're resolved. Oh, that's and Netflix. resolution <laughs> is kind of all we want in a lot of cases. You know, it's like if we know that something's going to get axed, at least let it have a complete story. Because what's going to happen is if you ever think that content is going to be a selling point on your platform again, it won't. But if you give it a resolution, it always will. You know, people will go back and go, well, you know, I never watched that show that I wanted to watch eight years ago. I never got around to it. And it happens to be on Netflix. So now is my opportunity. But if they've heard that it ended badly and wasn't resolved, they're not going to bother. So you're losing important sales tools for the future of your service while you're focusing on the money you're trying to save right now. But obviously, streaming services are in that same funk because everything just boomed during the pandemic. And now people are out doing other things again. So things have changed. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Warner's looking at is the movie theaters are where to make the money again. You know, so they're, they're looking at the decisions. <laughs> they're looking at the decisions the previous CEO made about, like, going straight to straight to streaming, like with the Dune movie and, you know, other stuff that came out that year. And, and never again. You know, they're looking at them as a mistake. And I'm like, those are the things that got people onto your service, people. Yeah. That's why, that's why I have HBO Max. Well, I mean, that in a podcast where I talk about movies every week, but that's why I have HBO Max. HBO you know, Max has had such good content lately, too. Yeah, that's going to change. You know, yeah, it's that, that's That's what I'm saying. It's so sad. It's like, okay. But if you love Discovery, it's going to get all packaged up, so at least you got that. Eh. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Obviously, nothing to do with gaming, but the same is true of uh, the gaming market as well. You know, a lot of a lot of things are changing because over the last couple of years, the way people consume games, the way people play games, the way they engage with them has changed so much. Even the new direction that Wizards is looking at for D&D with the one D&D release that they're focusing on here, uh, 2024, right? That I they're doing so. all the playtest stuff for this starting out now has a heavy focus on online play. Oh, uh, you know, like subscription stuff, right? Like they're leaning that, toward 
and they're focusing on a, a revolutionary virtual tabletop, you know, mm-hmm. with a three using the um, uh, using Unreal or Unity or one of those using an, a, a 3D engine. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a fantastic idea. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. But then again, I'm stuck in a place where I got to play online all the time. So what's not to love? You know, I would still rather play at the goddamn table. Like, yeah. you know, a lot of us, not most, not not all of us by any stretch. And during the pandemic, again, more people who were stuck at home and got interested in gaming, you know, doing uh, tabletop RPGs and stuff because their friends told them we can do this online and got introduced to the hobby and and younger people that these tools are all they've ever known. Mm-hmm. Their entire experience with the game is changing right now. And I know? think, too, that for the crowd who plays in order to, like, look for group and play online through the online tools and stuff, mm-hmm. opening up to like releasing uh, packs of visuals for their ter- virtual tabletop uh, is kind of a good idea for that crowd that consumes yeah. in that way. Well, and consider well, I've I've run adventures where I bought the adventure material from like Roll20, for example. I bought the adventure material on D&D Beyond, so I had all the integrated stuff for the characters. I bought a, another one on Roll20, so I had all the maps and miniatures and stats and stuff all right there in my fingertips. Because it was there, because it just made it easier, right? And that made me, that's the reason I actually ran some published stuff that they had made. Like, hey, this just again. (laughs) Yeah. And willing to. Even though you had it in your closet for 30 years. Yeah, exactly. Even though it's on my bookshelf, more than willing to. And Um, because they provide a quality product at that level. Yeah, absolutely. Now, back in the day, I had a group of friends. We used to play uh, RP tools at the time, was the thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, definitely older tech but um we would sit in somebody's living room one person would have a big display up mm-hmm. with all the all the stuff for all of us to see and we'd all see our own little maps and characters and control our characters from our own laptops uh, at, it was, in the living room it was mm-hmm. a really great reaction the development of rp tools was a really great reaction to the fact that third edition works so well as a miniatures game it yeah. didn't require it and didn't even focus on it necessarily but all the rules were in the player's handbook for doing it that way, which D&D never had prior to that. You know, we fourth always had the possibility of, oh, yeah, fourth edition was fourth nothing edition. but fourth, a miniature. Fourth edition was, yeah. and it, it was, again, it was basically a distillation. <laughs> it, was, it was basically a distillation of that, right? Third edition gave you all these rules that worked well with miniatures, so a lot of us started playing with miniatures. Fourth edition created a game that relied on that. You could play it without, but you had to actually translate rules into theater of the mind, real world ideas. Mm-hmm. Out of the game space, out of the you know, out of the game speak, which was so weird at the time. Uh, so you know, you just played on a map with menus. That, that was great. I it's think fine. another thing that's pretty cool with the virtual tools is I've seen a lot of people that now have like TV tables in their game room, and yeah, so and I have to just, admit, you don't have to be <laughs> you don't have so to be cool. online. You can be in person, and then you've got the TV table with the virtual tools and. Basically I would love thing. that. It would be so cool. Basically the same thing Rich was talking about, only in a more advanced and integrated more advanced format. Setting, yeah. Yeah. And I've done that before, too, the same way. I mean, it's been a while before all the, you know, the stuff we do now with all the online tools. But, I mean, where I would put a map up and, you know, plug into my computer to get a display for a second screen, put a map up on a table and have the... I had a program where I could do the combat map. DM Genie was the one I used for third edition. And I had uh, the ability to do kind of a little virtual table. I mean, the idea was I could put a map up and use, like, little dots and tokens, different colored, and label them stuff to to what people were. And that way, people could see it. In a complex combat, I went ahead and did that because it was fun or interesting. 
in, to do in a lot. when I set up my <laughs> game room, I set it up so that my table had power in the middle of the table to power several laptops together in case that was ever going to be a play option. Yeah. That was the type of thing I did. We actually did that. Um, so I want to say we're looking at circa 2008. Uh, it was about the time um, Jason started gaming with us, actually. Uh, I think if you if we were to talk about his first gaming experiences with us, uh, this would have been right at that time. We got to a point where we were using, because I used, like I said, I used a program called DM Genie, and they made a player version that was just light. It lacked all the DM tools, right? Mm-hmm. Had all the character management stuff. So you didn't have to use the paper. You just, you, you, could, you could even do like online dice or digital dice or something, but most people just still roll their dice. But we got so used to using those that at one point I just encouraged everyone, why don't we just do it, use the, use these tools? Because from the DMs st- software, I had access to all their character stuff. It was all networked, right? We, so everybody came over with laptops and stuff. So we had like a sea of laptops. There. I had eight players in that game. It was crazy. At one point, after a few weeks of this, I look up and I realize that I'm not seeing anybody engaging with each other at all for an entire <laughs> game session. Everybody is looking at their screens. We're in the same room. It was entirely unnecessary to be in the same room at that point. Role-playing still would have to be, you know, you'd have to look up and engage if you're going to role-play and you have voice and body language and all the stuff that comes with dramatic, dramatis personae, which we do a lot of. But we didn't necessarily focus on that. It turned, it turned, it came to be the exception to the rule. And of course, I would get people to complain that such and such wasn't paying attention and was playing a game on their computer. And I'm like, if they're not really engaged with the D&D game, why am I worried about what they're doing with their time? It's fine. Just when we get to them, remind them that what's going on or whatever. It's no different than people having their phones at the table and dicking around, you know. But this was, again, kind of early in that in that era. You know, we didn't all have – We I, I think um, at the time, Jason, when he joined us, in fact, didn't have a smartphone. And he was like – he was the one who got impatient with everybody else. Like, I will never be that guy that gets all distracted and plays with my phone while everybody's <laughs> – you're already laughing, Rich. I see it. <laughs> because when he finally got a smartphone like a year later, he turned into that guy more than anybody we knew. Oh, he was wow. the guy who would have to be reminded that things were going on at the table. Um, you know, that is something I like about how I've set up my recent gaming uh, group is that I – like from the start, I was like, hey, let's try to keep this as um, device-free as possible. You're so in person again. Yeah, so we aren't even having phones at the table. Nobody's got an electronic character sheet. We're just like are you as using a laptop or anything to run the game? No, nope. are you doing everything on nope. paper? All my notes are on paper. <laughs> so that's the way I do it with my family now. When we game, it's like I I won't even let my son because he got he got so so reliant on it. at least even he would at least have to have the app on his phone. Part of his problem is his handwriting is atrocious. But if so, if he has to write stuff on a character sheet, it causes a problem. So I went ahead and, and pre-printed the character sheets, you know, that, that we built in like D&D Beyond or whatever. It helped a little bit. Although the way to improve handwriting is to write with right. your hand. You and would think funny. that, but let me tell you, I know a person who was a teacher and her handwriting is absolutely atrocious and I cannot read it. And she's uh-huh. written lots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, writing is a hobby, no less. Well, you also have to have the desire to write better. <laughs> I that's, have that's to actively work if I want my writing to be legible to other humans. Well, he's yeah, young I, enough. It probably would make a difference if he had to write a bunch. One of those people Hopefully. that I would handwrite my homework and then forget to put my name on it, and someone would be like, hey, this looks like a guy's writing. I'm like, no, it's mine. I <gasps> <laughs> I'd be the one that would write a, a two-page essay, and it'd look like four different people worked on it. My writing, was, my writing would change the, when I came back to it. When I was uh, in third grade, I went through a course 
called Danilian handwriting, uh, which is like a kind of italic, sort of loopy handwriting. It wasn't cursive, mm-hmm. but I think it was like to get us ready for cursive or something oh, like that. Oh, interesting. Um, and uh, it came with, here are the rules of how to write. And then the way my brain works is like, these are the rules I stick to. So I usually, because when I'm writing, I remember like sticking to rules. Then I end up like writing like that unless I'm like very hurried. And the more hurried I am or the more like auto writing I'm doing, the worse it looks. Does (laughs) it stress you out if you have to like be in a hurry to write? Yeah. It does with me because I write slow. My writing is really pretty because I did calligraphy when I was a kid. So I always wanted to have pretty writing. So I focused on keeping it that way. And if I get fast, it isn't pretty anymore, and it drives me fucking bonkers. Right. right. But, but I do suffer. Type where I can type as fast as I can think. <laughs> right. But I do suffer yeah. that of, like, I'll look through old journals, and even in the same journal entry, I'll see my handwriting change, like, depending on how I was feeling or what I was writing about or if I was writing yeah. faster. I'm like, it almost looks like different people wrote this, but it didn't. It was all me. <laughs> Are you good at typing, Rich? I I mean, I'm only run about 40 words a minute, 40, 50 yeah, words a minute. I, I probably don't even do that. And, I, and, I, and I, I don't, atrocious. I don't have confidence. Like, I, I know that I can. I don't have to look at my hands when I'm typing, but I always want to. Oh, half the numbers are work off my keyboard. I drive people nuts at work. They're like, I have no idea where your keys are. And I'm like, they don't move. They're in the same order every other keyboard. <laughs> we're more in that generation because it, they, we were in school when computers started appearing in school. I had to learn to type with a piece of paper over my hands. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yes. I learned to type on a piece of paper. We got a little piece of paper with a keyboard on it because uh, we didn't oh, necessarily how, all have keyboards. How keyboard. cool is that? So we had to like <laughs> type on a piece of paper. But, but you're not supposed to look at it either. No. Um, I had an electronic but, typewriter when I was a kid. I, but, I wrote so much. My parents bought me one. I also have an ergonomic keyboard, one. so my keys aren't in the same order as everybody else's keyboards in the in the office. But that I have a little keyboard typer? at home and it works. So. Are you t- are you, do you type, Vanessa? Are you going to get it? Yeah. You think about it at all? Because all of us live on our computers. If oh, I start yeah. thinking about what I'm well, typing and then I so. forget where the, the letters are. So oh. if I'm just like stream of consciousing, I'm totally fine. Don't even have to look at it. If I start actually thinking about what I'm typing, it's like, oh my God, where are the letters? <laughs> <laughs> It's been so long since I used a Z. What? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So if I'm just like, say at work, I'm responding to a web ticket or something. I know what I'm saying. I know what I'm saying. Wait, what was my closing? But I also learned how to do uh, office work when Lotus had everything as macro commands and you could type your way through any menu process. They have some of those in our product I support right now, and I can still use them some days when I try. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, it drives other people crazy. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm a big old keyboard fanatic. If I can right. get away from using the mouse, I will. Yeah, quick keys. Quick keys saved me on my uh, video editing program, um, a lot of image editing program. If you can just find the quick keys to figure out how to do it, it's so much better than having to yeah. navigate the but, menus. Absolutely. But that goes back to not wanting to leave my home row. And the moment I grab my mouse, I am off my home row. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. When I was at the post office, I was in a data entry job for a few years, and they they teach you a different way to input data. Like they don't, they were there. It was all about creating the maximum efficiency, so you only use like ten keys on the entire keyboard. 
And they represent different things based on what pieces of data you're working with at the time. So if it's an address, like if you're on the number line, those keys are numbers, where if you're on a, if you're like typing the name of a street, those keys are suddenly letters, you know, stuff like that. They didn't want you to go 10 key or anything like that. They wanted you to get fast at this. Um, I focused on that for a while and it turns out I was still a lot faster at 10 key. But right. I, uh, I, I got so used to it that today, even today, and it's been, I'm guessing probably like eight or nine years since that job because we, you know, transitioned to something else while I was at the office, at the post office. I still to this day will find myself trying to type numbers with like ASD and like, what the hell am I typing? And I'm looking at it going, where did I go wrong? <laughs> but, yeah, you know, so so whatever you boil into your brain, you know, whatever whatever you get used to, and I use hotkeys for everything, have for years, you know, and so I'm just so used to that, and I can't function if I've got to go, fun- you know, finding shit on menus and using my mouse for stuff. It just it drives me nuts slowing down. I can't remember where stuff is. Like, you know, I I use a hotkey for that. The I, uh, numerous commands in in Adobe Audition that I use for recording. Numerous commands, you know, just that are all I've I've set all the hotkeys up. You know, for years I've been using the same combinations. So like, if I get an update to the software, I just have to go through and reset them again. Uh, right, I gotta find them. <laughs> it's, it's like it drives me crazy. But uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting. When I was uh, in middle school, I actually used to type like um, I would type up like combat cards and stuff for my monsters and, and things, and, and and you know, and my game notes. You know, so I, that's that's when I, I know that I really got started typing because it was something I was passionate about doing. So I started doing a lot of it. And it's also when I started writing stories and stuff. I put, uh, I put but, yeah. mine into Lotus 1, 2, 3 and printed them out as right, labels. Right. <laughs> and used like old page makers and like spreadsheets yeah. and stuff. And oh, uh, man, those were the days. Whatever. <laughs> just like, I was just kind of curious. It drives me nuts watching these kids text so fast I can't see what their fingers are doing. You know, I... I <laughs> I use I got, swipe I, and I drive Justin crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this, I use the swipe a lot too, but I'm not I'm not great at it. It'll be like because I don't have the patience right then. To, I, I want to write a full sentence and it's just not going to be a fast way, so I have to stop and concentrate. My you know. favorite thing about swipe is that sometimes I cannot spell a word that I'm used to using and spelling, and I can just kind of <laughs> you get close. wiggle my finger around <laughs> close enough, and it's like clearly this is the word you want, and I'm like clearly it is exactly. It's, it's good pretty clever AI. For a while, I just <laughs> yeah. I fell out. Of Oh, dude. But anyways, that's why I like using my computer because I can type faster than I can. My uh, my boss at the at the bank is much is much younger than I am, and so she does everything on her phone. And I just I watch her, and she has like the 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 Apple Watch or whatever, and she has her iPhone out all the time. And she's just so fast, so fast. It's like, so um, are you going to tell such and such about this thing? Say, oh yeah, click and done, and just like that, just it puts it away. Like, what do you, what, what? All I did was saw you wave at your phone, like it was some sort of magic device. <laughs> it is <sighs> drives me crazy. <laughs> End rant. Okay. Are you <laughs> sure? <laughs> no, I'll but just that's grab a, my walker. <laughs> I like tangenting, but I may have gotten ridiculous there. Sorry. Well, you know. So, long story short, we're gonna do, we're still gonna see a lot more uh, technological focus in you know gaming moving forward. There's gonna be a lot of uh, with with wizards leading the way now, which they always have, of course, or they have for years now. Um, with, with Dungeons and Dragons leading the way, they always have. There, there's gonna be this focus on creating more immersive online tools. And um, at one level, I really, really approve of that. I really agree with that. I love technology that gives us more to work with in creating a gaming experience. But I kind of, I know that I'm, I'm not a grognard, but I'm, there's just enough 
of that old gamer in me that laments the idea that kids will never actually, there's going to be a point not too far in the future. The entire generation of gamers is never going to have really played the game at the table. Or if they do, it's the odd experience rather than the regular one. Mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, every year I run a convention where I throw, you know, 50 tables into a room and and say, here, guys, go at it. I'll, I'll assign you tables, you know, schedule your games. I'll assign you tables. And people show up, but I, you know, ultimately, eventually, that sort of thing may go. You know, the the, the physical in person, you know, convention will start to seem like a lark. I think. And, uh, mm. uh, I think it depends because I'm sure there's a certain um, part of the audience that are playing strictly online that wouldn't play if they didn't have the online tools. Yeah, that's and true. I think there's probably another part of the audience that still enjoy using the theater of the mind at the table. Uh, and so they'll go search out those experiences. So, and and obviously, know. most of it translates still, you know, to the online experience and back and forth. I mean, you can play various styles of gaming in both environments pretty easily. So if you are, I mean, I know people who don't particularly care for gaming online, period. Well, Jess, you mentioned that when we were getting started. You discovered mm-hmm. you didn't like playing online. Yeah, I just uh, don't really like it. I uh, we've you know we've adapted out of necessity uh, during the last couple of years and have a really great online gaming kind of rapport and experience. I've discovered that I don't really love doing it with people I don't regularly game with. Mm-hmm. Like that particular issue changes the the kind of the way we communicate so much. You know, I, we're used to each other online now. The group that I regularly game with. So we know how to um, make it work back in the back and forth. You know, we know how to engage with each other and with our own tools and make the game what we want it to make. But it does become a more personal experience there. I mean, there's less there's less of that energy in the room with you. Uh-huh. So it becomes what you personally make out of it. And I, I, I mean, like I said, I'm used to it, but I'm never going to love it. Not, not the way I, I love gaming at the table. It was just kind of shocking to me to realize that... Uh... There are swaths of people who started playing recently in 5th edition, started Mm -hmm. playing online and looking for group sort of Discord things, that that's the only way they've played. They've never played a group game with, like, local friends sort of thing. Like, they have only ever played with strangers. And I felt similarly when, you know, uh, especially we mentioned earlier during the 4th edition era particularly, People that got into D and D during that time, and you know, I'm not, I'm not bagging on that version of D and D, particularly because it wasn't for me, but it was great for people. I know people that loved it. It was a very combat-focused game. It was very much focused on the grid. It was very much focused on miniatures. I mean, that was all really part of the experience. Uh, the kind of the powers structure had a very kind of MMO kind of feel, where you tapped your powers as you went, and you, you know, you re- refreshed them, regen them, you know. I, I I don't think there was anything wrong with the experience, but people that got into D&D during that time when they were creating a better, uh, th- that was when Wizards was really spearheading creating a better social um, organized play mm-hmm. experience, you know, D&D encounters at the time. And, and, you know, reaching out to game stores and making it more holistic, you know, getting more people engaged, getting more people involved, which, you know, fortunately continued in 5th edition with Adventures League and they've done, you know, great things to get people into it. But those people that never really thought of the game in any kind of context except for that, you know, grid, miniature, this is a, a tactile game. You know, whereas growing up, to me, when people said, well, where's the game board? <laughs> that was my favorite question. <laughs> it's all in here, you know? It's, it's, it's all in your imagination. That's what I loved about it. That is the thing I loved most about it when I was younger. 
and you know, experiences differ. I don't, I, I'm not complaining or anything. We we do an online game right now. The tools are there to make it really easy to use the maps and the minis, you know, the virtual stuff, and and we do, you know, use them pretty exclusively, exhaustively in in one of our games, and uh, we have a good time with it. But it is definitely a different experience. We recognize that going into it as a group. We discussed that obviously because we are stupidly analytical enough to have a you know regular podcast where we sit down and, and discuss our gaming experiences. But I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that. I just lament that people don't have the experience, the breadth of experience that I feel the game has offered in its totality and still does. You know, they approach it going into 5th edition, which does give us a lot more uh, room room for a theater of the mind play again. Uh, people come into it as that with that kind of mindset of tactical play, and then the online tools reinforce it. <laughs> you know, when you think they virtual really tabletop, <laughs> you literally think virtual tabletop. Where's my map? Where's my minis? And uh, it makes it so easy, you know, because I can do all that, all that without spending a dime if I want to. You know, find maps, places, or build them. You know, make them online or something, and find images to make into little miniatures and. It's all great. I mean, I, I'm enjoying it, but I uh, it's not the same experience. You know, but again, you know, I, I, that's to me the best kind of parallel I can think of to what we're dealing with now, where, you know, people are going to be getting into this game with all these digital tools and moving forward, like I said, with what they're going to do with 1D&D and that virtual tabletop. Imagine that being your first and for a long time, exhaustively, probably your only experience of D&D. That's going to be what it always is to you. And if if the uh, regular tabletop experience doesn't measure up, it's going to be, why did you guys ever play like this? <laughs> you know what I mean? I uh, imagine, too, with the new table virtual tabletop uh, focus is... People are going to be able to uh, customize their original characters more, and so I bet we'll see a lot more of like taking your character into other campaigns or modules or whatever, like focused on, oh, well, I've spent all this time and money on this character, so I want to use it in all of the stories instead of building new ones. That's legit. It's just like um, we had the conversation here a while back. We started using D&D Beyond uh, and became invested in it, right? We spent money on memberships. We spend money on materials in it that we can share with our group and and give more options at play. All of it's integrated, so you don't have to you know you don't even have to do math to play D anD D anymore, right? <laughs> it's all there, right? And so with that tool set, I stopped doing homebrew rules, except for things that were easy to add in D anD D Beyond, making a magic item or you know creating a monster, things like that. Other than that, you know, I, 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 at home, in my home game now, I've gotten to the point where I've decided I, I beat my head against the wall enough over the years. There are always things I want to do a little different than the published rule set. And so there are rules that I am using at home now because we're doing it on paper. And I went ahead and designed a character sheet for my home game that has those rules integrated on it. So it's right there. We don't have to worry about it. But we couldn't do the, exactly the same thing on D. A good example is the exhaustion rules. They're running in this with one D and D right now uh, because the play test includes what they're doing with exhaustion, and it's actually a really cool system. It's not the one I'm using, by the way. I'm using the one from Level Up right now because I really like it, uh, Advanced Five E. But the uh, the one D and D what they're going to do is instead of like the different like levels of exhaustion having different <coughs> effects or whatever. It's going to be basically, uh, if you have a level of exhaustion, you have a minus one to your D20 rolls, period. A second level, another minus, you know, another minus, minus two, minus three, minus one, up to minus five or something. And then you run into the debilitation, you know. 
uh, which I think is really br- brilliant because it's easy, it's effective, and people feel it, but it uh, isn't complicated. It's stupid It's stupid easy to remember. It's not as spirally as the one that's already written in 5th edition. Oh, exhaustion in 5th edition, which is a rule that a lot of people just even forget exists. It sucks. It, the The standard rule for pl- in the player's handbook, it is harsh. You know, you find yourself feeling pretty debilitated pretty fast, and it takes... You can't just like sleep it off and all will go away. If you've got multiple levels building of exhaustion, you're stuck for a while. You're not getting out of it that fast unless you got some high level magic going. So yeah, I I feel that uh, in real life. Yeah. Uh, they also had like a couple of action options and and the uh, level up rules that I really liked as well that we that I added into my game. But and that's because they like it, they integrated stuff right. So it's hard to take like one rule and just like not use other stuff. But you don't have to go crazy. Right. Um, like they have a, their exhaustion, their first level exhaustion is almost, almost a throwaway. It's like, oh, this is the warning that you're getting exhausted, right? Uh, the first level exhaustion, you can't sprint. Well, sprint is an action they added in level 5e, uh, level up. So, uh, the sprint action allows you to move quadruple your speed if that's all you're doing for the round, but you, uh, provoke attacks opportunity and you can't change course. Like with a regular like dash action or something, you can move, maneuver, you know, blah blah blah. You can you do what they look serpentine, but with a you know sprint, you're you're all out running, right? You know, you're just trying to get to it. But you, the next round, you can sprint again and go a different direction if you want to. So there's your ability to do that, and you can only do it for so many rounds before you run out of the ability to continue sprinting. And you might even earn more exhaustion. I don't know, but like the first huh. level exhaustions, you can't use the sprint action. Okay, that's kind of clever. But one of the reasons they made that, I think, the case is because one of the rules they added to the game that I really like but is a little controversial is if you hit zero hit points in level up, you take a level of exhaustion. Oh, wow. So I like the mechanic and the way that feels It, it because I always kind of hated the the disconnect of you drop to zero, you know, the brink of death. Somebody comes over, does a quick, you know, uh, you know, one to four hit point heal or something, and you're as long as back in the game, alive, buddy. We have yeah. a chance. Statistically, maybe, you're just up and running. Yeah. Maybe for people who don't like exhaustion, there can be a winded rule added. So after yeah, so you drop that. to zero, you're winded instead of exhausted. And what I usually do is I don't let people necessarily take an action the next round. The even like if somebody is healed, brought back from zero. I don't let them take, you get to their initiative and they just take their full actions or whatever. I, I'll, I'll let them do like a move to like get to their feet or something. Maybe a move action and it takes half your movement to get up anyway. So, but that's it. But that's all I've ever kind of done, you know. And, and, and it, even then there's a case-by-case basis for like, if it's going really bad against the party, <laughs> I may want to let them get an action in because frankly, it's going to matter, you know, things like that. But uh, mostly, yeah, it's it's just like it's it's always felt a little kind of weird to me. But I but with the exhaustion rule being where that first level exhaustion doesn't really hurt you much, you know, it's like oh well, so that's not as big a deal then. Are you sure you want to continue? Yes. Okay, sorry, had my had a weird message from my recorder. Um, but I mean that's just one example, you know, because of our investment in D and D bond, we just we've, we've just it's modified the way we play. We use the tools that are there because it's super easy, super accessible. And, you know, Richard and I both have invested a lot of, like, books and stuff on there. Then you have me, who plays and hasn't spent a dime. (laughs) (laughs) Another nice advantage of those those systems. I think D&D is a hobby that's much easier to share with friends who aren't spending money on hobbies than other hobbies. Like, uh, like thinking about, like, a painting like a modeling hobby right if you put models together it's hard to share that with someone who's not spending money on it 
Yeah, you yeah. can come over to my house on Wednesdays and use my models, my paints, my glues, right. my. <laughs> And you know, then when like, you're done with the car, it'll go on my shelf. Yeah, yeah I'm so, so glad I invested all this money. Yeah. I haven't spent an afternoon sitting around watching someone else put a model together. So yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> that's fair. Some of us I, introverts yeah. are able to spend time differently than uh, non-introverts. <laughs> like, yes, I will come and sit quietly next to you while you read. That's fine with me. Oh, yeah, here, well, you want the green paint? Oh, <laughs> Here's the green paint. I've always yeah, thought yeah, it was weird. The the, red paint. You you know, my wife can sit there and just watch somebody play a video game for hours. And just, that. you know, no big deal. Whatever. It's like, drives me crazy. I used to be able to just do yeah. that. Now I have to do that and do stuff on my phone, too. Yeah. I watch yeah. Justin play games on Now I do everything also on my phone while I'm doing something else, so... Yeah. And I'm not saying I haven't ever done it. I mean, there's particularly when there's games that I'm excited about or something that, I, that she's excited about. And so I'm sharing that excitement. You know, it's like then it's, it feels more like a together experience. I but grew up she, watching it doesn't have my, to be that for her. I grew up watching my brother playing video games like it was yeah. not a thing Same. I was doing. It was a thing I was watching him do. So it's it you know, a type of companionship mm -hmm. at that point. Yeah. I, which I, I love the idea, you know, I and uh, I. I wonder if it isn't a little akin to what people get out of like actual play shows and stuff. Right. Because actual play podcasts is another thing I have a hard time doing. I can't listen to them for very long. I'm I can't just do that one. not engaged. <laughs> but when I put one up, I, 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 I tell you something guys. I, I mean, I don't know without going and looking at how many actual shows there are on our actual play feed. There's, there's quite a few, nothing near what there is of our round table. Right. I mean, we're on episode, what I say, 280-something, right? Yes. Nowhere, nowhere near that. But every single one of those shows just has exponentially more listeners than our roundtable discussion. People don't want to sit around and listen to dorks talk about their favorite hobby for hours. The people <laughs> that do, you find listeners who are still here, and I appreciate you so, so very, very much. Obviously, our kindred spirits in this, and I, I love you for that. Maybe one of you can explain it to me. Don't even try. It's not worth it. I, no, do. Try, try do to it. explain it. Send in the letter, and I'll read it for you. <laughs> or, or that. Yeah, or, yeah send yeah. letters. Jesse's happy to read letters. Uh, email's fine. Emails are fine. Uh, old letter writing is cool. <laughs> Let me get my wax stamp out. Right. I would love a wax seal set. Oh, you do? Everybody in I, this I would love to oh, have one. Oh, except Jesse has one. I don't, I used to I don't have, have one. one. I used to have one called a faux wax. I don't know if you can get if if they're still in business or not. So it was like it was like wax, but it was more flexible when it dried. It oh, wasn't just okay. like wow, it wasn't like okay. a cake, like a solid cake when it dried. And you use like one of the smaller hot glue guns to, to just. Oh yeah, that'd it. be cool. But what I, the reason I got it was because I was doing um, wedding invitations for my first um, my, my previous marriage, and uh, we decided because we had a very medieval kind of renaissance thing going on, we decided to send out invitations that we wanted wax seals on, and those would go through the mail because when they ran through the machine, they didn't destroy the seal. Oh. Okay. Which a regular wax seal, of course, would have to be hand stamped, and it's getting harder and harder to get post offices to do that now. And because all the sorting equipment out there, you know, somewhere along the line, it's going to get run, run through a sorter, whether uh -huh. you want it to or not. But uh, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. I and I kept that, I kept hold of that stuff for years. They were like little sticks of wax, just like you know, I don't know whatever. The, the one I had had used sticks them all up of for gaming like stuff that and used a gun rather yeah. than right. them in a spoon. That's the only reason I even had a hot glue gun at the time. Yeah, but, <laughs> but open flame. I know, but I don't want to be sealing my letter looking like I'm doing crack. <laughs> I would be totally fine with that. But the only reason that I've even wanted a wax seal set was to make props for games. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, I thought you'd had one too. Oh, no. 
I have one somewhere. I've I've shopped for one a couple times, and I might have talked about it, but Justin like gave me a hard no. You don't need something to make props. Fine. If I find mine, <laughs> I'll let you borrow it. I've got several good stamps. So I love making handouts, though. I love yeah. making handouts. I always have drawing maps, writing things, you know, putting things together, printing stuff, and then making it look like it wasn't something that came off a printer. I've, you know, like I said, I was a calligrapher as a kid. I really like hand, mom, pr- hand props for games. So my mom loved doing, <laughs> and so I got into it when I was like seven. We we would do work on projects together, and I would do like simple parts and shit. And so I learned a lot of different texts and block text and stuff and all the different uh, calligraphic scripts, and I loved it. But it is hugely time-consuming to do right. that stuff by hand. And not perfect, which is fine. It shouldn't be perfect. That's kind of the point. Exactly. But, oh my God, who has the time in life? I do not. Well, so, but you know. sometimes that's the hobby, though. Like, spending the time on the crafting mm-hmm. is the hobby. So I understand that. Yeah, yeah. When my hobby is the gaming and it's just a support structure and there's other ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I have the time, I would love to do it that way. And I, you know, I can, I have the tools. If I don't have the time, at least I can do it another way, mm-hmm. you know, print it off and, and try to make it look good. Right. But there's only so many great script fonts out there too, though. Yeah, a... Well, you know, this guy's got the same handwriting as the last seven sages we ran into. <laughs> oh, <laughs> could they be related villains? Could they be related? Same guy. Oh. Hey, you Dylan, know what? I hadn't come up with that topic idea, but of the day. <laughs> <laughs> we got back to it. So we're being fooled. <laughs> Recently, on an episode of Exposition Street, if you never listen to Exposition Street, you should check it out. We talk about movies. Um, uh, now we're doing like a biweekly schedule right now, but. Uh, every every uh, episode we come out with, we, we we pick a movie and we do kind of a deep dive on it. We talk about the various aspects of it, and then we kind of um, let Jason tear it apart. So we, I'm not uh, part of yeah. that one because if I were, I would give every movie a five star because I knew how much work they put into it, and it's yeah, wonderful that people share with me. Which, <laughs> so we'd have mean, another Eric, which would mean the movies unfairly, and that <laughs> Jess and I are kindred spirits in this way. Yeah, I get it. Uh, so we. Um, we were talking about villains recently. I don't know what episode it was it came up on, but there was a folk. Oh, I think it was Hocus Pocus. We were we were talking about that, which is the most recent release at the time. Oh, of this recording. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we, some of you had watched the sequel already. Uh, not, I think it, I don't think it was either of you though. It was like Jason and Jason, Jason and Kid. Richard but, had. Um, I, I watched hadn't. the sequel. Oh, maybe it was okay. Richard yeah. and uh, Kid. I think I was. The- first one to watch it so in the the sequel it sounded like they did stuff that made the villains more sympathetic they did and it annoys me childhood (laughs) i actually appreciated which is weird because i usually don't appreciate that but isn't that um, like the maleficent that disney did make the villain more kind of yeah yeah so jason kind of ranted about it not be and and i i really get it because i have issues with it not with the idea because i think i really like the sympathetic villain but with the trope becoming such a common thing. Because Everywhere. Now when, it, when all you have is sympathetic villains, you I, know... It, I want to hate someone just to hate them. <laughs> and, and so that was kind of the question I thought was interesting to explore. So we were recently um, uh, in, in my household released and talked about the fact that, for obvious reasons, as you'll see here, we recently talked about the fact that uh, D&D, Dungeons & Dragons, uh, which I started playing when I was, you know, eight years old, is uh, an experience where you imagine yourself, your character, what have you, in this brutally violent and aggressive role a lot of times. You know, especially as kids where the fun is in just the the letting loose, right? 
a lot of it is, you know, my son still to this day, his favorite character is a dragonborn barbarian. Dragonborn because dragonborn. But he, he loves the barbarian because it's it's a simple murder machine. And that's all he really wants out of it. It's it's great to him. But you can do so much more depth in a barbarian. <laughs> yes, absolutely. They're beat sticks. We, that is a lot of our focus, obviously, in our in our group and in our show is about that depth. But the point is that we we talk about and, and this this was less of an issue, I think, before the video game era. Because uh, uh, for so many, you know, for so long, more than two decades now, video games, particularly violent video games, have been kind of a staple of our entertainment world. Yes. And there's been, as long as those have been around, there's been criticism from people that felt like they contributed to violence in the real world. You know, kids that grew up th- feeling like it was okay. You know, it's like I've, I had, um, my sister-in-law wouldn't let her, her kids in the aughts, wouldn't let her kids play games where you shot other people, like Call of Duty. They could play games where you shot aliens or monsters. And I thought, that's interesting. It's still violence. It's still killing stuff. It's still, you know, shooting massive guns, which is the fun part or whatever. I find it interesting that we kind of gloss over this because we don't protect kids in the RPG hobby. We celebrate kids in the RPG hobby. And that's never going to change for me. I'm, but then again, I don't worry about, you know, violent entertainment for my kids. I, I think, you know, you, as a parent, you can have some input into how this affects them in the long run. But uh, I, I don't necessarily know what I think of how it has affected um, our, our expectations regarding gaming. It is a brutal, you know, sort of violent hobby. Villains in this element are targets. Villains are something to be just overcome. Are there an obstacle, something to be defeated? Sympathetic villains already were kind of pushing, and, and, and you made the the example of Maleficent, which I think is a really interesting example. But Maleficent, that movie actually, we, we did it for the show actually. Um, that movie actually kind of rewrites our story. Yes, you know, it 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 inhabits the story of Sleeping Beauty. In that it's there, but it's 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 revisionist. You know, it's not just from her perspective. It which is which which is one way to do that, obviously. But it is a story about her that shows how she became what she became, and then rewrites some of the elements of the story that meet those expectations. You know, not that she isn't a villain, but she is the hero of that story, if you will. You know, she isn't really an antagonist in her own story, which makes sense. And of course, the the first kind of um, sympathetic villain I think that uh, we we usually run into is the one who thinks they're a hero, and that's the kind that I think is kind of fun to play with in like epic games because the villain who thinks of themselves as a hero gives you a lot of grist for the role playing mill, for the drama, for the storytelling. But when it comes to the simple element of the villain is the bad guy, it you know it's a question of how clear you want it to be, right? The the biggest examples we've seen, like in recent years, in entertainment have been like Thanos is a really great example of a villain who thinks of himself as the hero. And that's you know, why I like Thanos. <laughs> he, at, at his, I mean, we don't really dwell on his backstory so much. We get a lot of character in there with him in the, in those movies because they were building him up over several movies. But uh, so so we understand his motivations. But backstory is one of the ways that we usually see that come up. You know, if you have a sympathetic villain, it's because you have a villain where you learn how they became the person they are. You learn that Loki didn't get as much love and attention from his father as Thor did, and so that Loki lashed out and became a villain. 
you know, we identify with, we don't identify with how ridiculously crazy and insane the Joker is, but we watch these stories that try to explain how he became who he was. Ooh, that movie was heart-ripping. I'm not even thinking of that movie. I'm just all the iterations of the Joker. Um, The the audience comes to suspect that if someone tested their sanity in a similar way, they might break. You know, you might be just as ridiculously wicked um, or what have you. Uh, Killmonger was a really, since I was talking to MCU, was actually the one that kind of broke it for me, too. Because he was the first villain I felt like they put into play in the uh, Black Panther movie. Where he he wanted to help their people. He wanted to fight the oppression of um, African-descended people throughout the world. That was his core motivation. But his plan to do it was to remove T'Challa from power, become the king of Wakanda, and share their technology with the world. And his method included just killing anybody who got in his way. And that's where you become a villain, is the means to the end. So our characters are villains? Yeah. Sometimes. And that's kind of my point. <laughs> we celebrate the murder hobo because it's fun, right? It's extraneous. It's it's logistically accessible to us. But it plays really well with minis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's fair. Um, and I mean, I, got, I have lots of examples. Comic books are an easy kind of place to find examples, but uh, and, and fairy tales. But I don't know necessarily how I feel about pushing the sympathetic villain into the gaming, and here's why. When your PCs are involved in any kind of major campaign effort, you know, stories unfolding, they're engaging with the small things that the, made, that the big bad is responsible for, what have you. Over the course of the game, they become increasingly antagonistic regarding the villain. And then usually what happens if you have a a sympathetic villain is somewhere during the campaign, you start introducing elements into gameplay, into the story that that instruct the the players regarding the villain's nature. You know, they start start to see stuff about their background or start to understand the way they look at their master plan, etc., etc., so what I've seen when I've when I've used this tactic, employed this tactic in a, in a campaign, is you get to a point where the PCs resent not just not only the PCs resent the villain because they're making him they're making because it makes me as the as the character it makes me have to focus on taking down somebody who I don't necessarily disagree with, which I like the complexity of that, but then it also makes the player resent the campaign story yeah because it's not as clean it's one thing if it's something you're dealing with over the course of a handful of sessions at like a, a lower immediate level it's another if you're dealing with struggling against this person's machinations for like nine levels of play i realize that's a dnd term but you know what i mean but there's also the other side i, I mean okay you get movie stories that that end up having you get to the end and you find out that what the bad guy was actually trying to do, maybe not the right way, was the thing that needed to be done. So you end up having to do that. So I get to that point with a sympathetic villain where I start to wonder, wait, is my character supposed to actually do this thing then? Or am I not supposed to allow it to happen? Because now I don't know what my goal is. Right. Am I, am I, am I the hero? You know, or am I being duped? And that's, I think, the feeling that it creates. Yeah. Is this sense that I am being manipulated, whether it's by the villain or by the story or by the dungeon master or whatever. I am being manipulated into doing exactly what the villain was trying to do. Even if there's some element of maybe I can do it with more wisdom or more compassion or, you know, maybe I'll do it right or whatever. Uh, 
it's harsh, you know, it, 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 and people don't like feeling like they're being manipulated. That's not fun, heroic play, you know, and the, the, the American power fantasy is not about being manipulated into doing something. That's absolutely true. When approaching uh, TTRPGs as a more collaborative storytelling exercise than a power fantasy, though, I think it's kind of neat to have uh, encounter set up where the bad guy is the one you defeat, but then you realize that they were uh, like, and it doesn't even have to be your big bad evil guy, but like you realize that, <laughs> for example, uh, the wolf that seemed aggressive that you just killed actually just has a litter of puppies over there in the room. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> um, I and so I think I don't know. I think that it, it causes like uh, not just the players to have questions about you know the mechanics and the metagaming of the game, but also it lets them bring some of that into the character that they're playing and into the story that they're telling with it. Of like, okay, so maybe I don't always have to kill everything in front of my character. It's an interesting point, and if you're if you're approaching it very collaboratively, um, which even with even with more traditional games, I love seeing players do you know create an outside of the game sort of narrative about what's going on, work together or work with the game master to create opportunities for growth and and development of the story and their character's role in it. Uh, but it isn't always the way things play out, and um, when setting up story elements, it's kind of hard to predict the way they're going to roll. I, I love the idea of building that in a way that everybody can enjoy. And that's, that's I think, what's, uh, what's really neat, what's really rewarding. Because the, the situations where... Now, and, now, and I've done small-scale things where you're, you're hoodwinking the players a bit. Like, um, it, it, but, but again, finding a way to make something that's enjoyable about it. A really good example is an early mission with one of my house games with my, with my wife and my kids. They uh, were um, hired to deal with an owlbearer that was going crazy and causing problems in the woods. They go deal with they, they hunt the thing down to its cave. They deal with the owlbearer and then they find out there's a cub. You know, so you have the moment of oh my god, I just killed its mom. To oh my god, I get an owlbear pet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, so because not recommended. Do not. Pick up random uh, baby owl bears and try to make pets out of them. They are not house tameable. I swear. Don't the ask. The druid in Don't that party ask. is still carrying. Me. She created a papoose. Nero's character created a, a, a like a reverse backpack to carry him and for like put out holes so his legs would dangle out and stuff. Oh my god, they that's adorable. Meat around because that's what he feeds on. You know, it's like oh, dude. They'll they'll kill like a uh, humanoid, like orcs or something, and they'll like she'll she'll like harvest meat from the orcs for the owlbear, stuff like that. Like, this is really Turns dark, out guys. <laughs> the villains were the ones we became along the way, <laughs> <laughs> right? But uh, a more yes. like um, a more manipulative example of that was um, I remember listening to a podcast where they talked about. Uh, player characters coming across a group of goblins and, you know, murder hoboing their way into them and then finding out that they orphaned a bunch of goblin kids and feeling terrible because of it. And, you know, again, I love the idea if the player characters get to feel terrible. I love the drama of that. I like the inner conflict, but I don't necessarily want the players to feel that way. So when you manipulate the players, you end up with a situation where you're gambling a little bit how they're going to handle it. So if you can keep a, if you can keep some sort of like reward in mind when you're doing it as a as a game master, 
then you can come out the other side of that with options. You know, then people can feel like they, their characters can feel tormented about it, but they as a player get something exciting out of it for purposes of, you know, continuation with the story. We totally did that like, in our Saturday close. game. <laughs> oh no. We oh, obliterated no. like an entire cavern system of goblins and found like the grunt that was working for some goblin magic users and we were just, and he was just like still trying to do his job and it was either me or one of the other players that were just like no <laughs> don't kill him <laughs> and we ended up adopting him and he's he's got his own like set of gear and stuff but he ended up teaching us how to use some of the goblin technology we got weapon upgrades and all sorts of stuff out of this guy <laughs> oh, that's funny uh the ineffectual sympathetic villain is another kind of variant that i find um interesting and is super co- common you know, they they may or may not be entirely inept um, and may or may not qualify as a villain in the strictest sense. Sometimes they're just a rival, you know, so like, somebody uh, that works Kronk for the big bad. And uh, Emperor's New Group. Love Kronk. Okay. <laughs> what a great Best character. example ever. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he's a great sympathetic villain because he is, you know, he has a relationship with the villain that makes him feel what he's doing is right. Right and wrong is a little blurrier in their society. Yeah. You know, because technically the society where it was right is whatever the emperor said was right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It really was. But Isma was definitely not a good person, question mark. But Kronk was dumb. I loved that character. His uh, his journey, but but because he was dumb his, and, and already inside he was kind of a moral person, his journey wasn't really much of a journey. You know, it was more of a, just a realization. It's like, oh. I'm in the, in, the, in the wrong place. <laughs> I have music. the gun pointed the wrong way. Let me turn <laughs> it around. <laughs> uh, yeah, so gullibility is a really great defining trait for an inept villain, which I, um, a lot of times you'll see them kind of, you know, plotted against uh, more trickstery types or, you know, that, that use them in some way, you know, utilize their, their, their gullible nature or their naivete, you know, or their, their good nature, manipulate them into thinking that they're doing what's right when they're not, uh, which is a lot of great backstory for PCs I've seen as well. You know, it's like, I used to be a bad guy because I thought that would, then I was confronted with my bad guyness and like, Oh, not so much. I'll go murder hobo some. Uh, it's really, really great. Now, now I'm on a vengeance strike to destroy the group that raised me. <laughs> the one of the other kind of inept, um, sympathetic villains, ineffectual, I should say, not inept, that I find interesting is a trope called Draco and leather pants. And this is the element where the villain may or may not be somebody kind of nasty, but you feel like they're always just a little like not getting it, but they're also hot. You know, or they're also, there's something appealing or attractive about them. So you have all these, you know, fanfics start popping up all over the internet about them being converted or them doing the right thing or them just being with them or whatever. You know, the author's avatar in the story has a different relationship. And that's, that's the, uh, uh, Draco and Leather Pants, which I thought was a kind of, they're hot. So they must be right. Yeah, I mean, I always root for the Goblin King. Or they can be. Or they should be right, you know. Um, I, (laughs) whenever I think of that trope, though, I always think of, um, uh, what's his name? The the kid who was the, if Harry Potter hadn't been the chosen one, it would have been, oh, Neville. Neville. Um, Neville Longbottom. And then when his, uh, like, the actor, like, grew up. Grew up. And took some pictures, you know, that, 
you know, showing off his physique and stuff. And uh, there were, you started seeing people long bottomed used as a verb. I've been long bottomed. <laughs> it's like, cause Neville was such a dorky kind of kid, you know? Yep. He definitely had a glow fantastic. up. Uh, Nero once said that she was long bottomed by, um, uh, the main, the main kid in how to train your dragon. <laughs> uh, I can't remember his name. Oh, but, yeah. Hiccup, yeah. yeah. Because when Hiccup grew up, he was a much cooler character, you know, much more attractive model character. Um, I always find it weird with animation to try to figure out how, how you're supposed to feel about that stuff. Video games are the same way. It's like, gosh, she's hot. She's pixels. <laughs> I'm just drawn that way? <laughs> it's really common in video games, particularly with women. <laughs> but I found it interesting that um, sympathetic villainy is becoming so commonplace. Uh, Disney's doing a lot of it. Disney is right doing a lot of you know. it. Uh, but a lot of, you know, we, we're seeing it with the MCU. Uh, we're not... I always thought, I thought it was interesting when they decided to go back in Star Wars and do Darth Vader's story. They started as a kid, right? So you're you're watching Anakin and thinking, oh, this guy's going to be the bad guy, because when I was a kid and Star Wars came out, Darth Vader was just playing freaking the symbol of evil. I mean, he was he was dark and scary and a perfect villain, perfect villain. He is iconically, I mean, well, he he's essentially one of the most iconic villains of our era, and. Uh, they didn't try to make him sympathetic, which I thought was a good call. Now, I don't necessarily know that I like the way they did treat him um, because the scripts could have been a little better. I loved the Star Wars prequels, by the way. Anybody that thinks differently because I criticize them just doesn't understand me. Go listen to Exposition Street. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the uh, you know, Anakin, they, they didn't make him sympathetic because as you saw him developing and moving towards the dark side, you the whole time were sitting here thinking, you fucking wimp, you know, you asshole. Get your shit together. Stop thinking like that. You're never sitting here going, oh, I totally understand and agree with his position. And yeah, I know how he could be this way. It's perfectly reasonable. I need to rewatch those movies. Apparently. Governed by his fear and the things that, you know, let him made him accessible to the dark side because he you know, had the connection to the force. I I loved that um, uh, construct. I didn't love all the journey. Um, part of the problem is I really liked the character for a minute. You know, adult, not the kids so much, the Jake Lloyd, but the, you know, um, Hayden, Hayden uh, is that his name? Yeah. yeah. Uh, his performance of the character, minus the dialogue, which it was terrible in Attack of the Clones. Um, that's the one thing I said. The one big criticism I had about the movie is I walked out of the theater when we watched it. And, and I know there's people listening right now going, you fuckhead, why did you watch any of that bullshit? Um, the, uh, but I walked out of the theater and the first thing I did was look to whoever I went in. I think it was kid that was with me. And I, I said, I could have rewritten every line of dialogue in that movie. and made a better movie. What is, what did we just watch? But I loved the performance. I liked the way he portrayed the torment of the character and the movie. I thought he was a fantastic actor. Uh, and Natalie Portman, you know, elevates everything around her. Uh, <clears throat> remember, remember the fifth of November. <clears throat> so, um, exposition street. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's coming for you. I bet. You need to make a point of it. We just did. I mean, we just we just recorded our episode for it. Yeah, today would be today a very would be good the day. exactly correct day. <laughs> the day we're recording. Yes, uh, that one will be dropping this next week. Um, I'm going to try to drop it on the 9th, I think. So, uh, I remember, yeah. Remember the 9th. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Remember, remember the 9th. Well, yeah, I t we had to pick a day. I mean, these schedules. Schedules. We didn't know. We didn't even know we were going to be able to get together today. To do this, so to him. Um, we knew two hours before we started. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's good enough, except for Expo, because for this show, all I had to do is a little bit of research and organize some notes. 
for Exposition Street, there's a, a lot movie. more gotta watch the whole prerequisites. Movie. <laughs> yeah. I gotta pull a bunch of clips, uh, build the intros, all the work that goes into pre-production. Uh, yeah. Although it does make post-production something of a breeze. I don't mind that. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that was kind of the stuff I pulled up on Sympathetic Villains. I, I still don't know necessarily how much I approve of them as a campaign tool because I think that there's give and take there. But, it depends um, on your players. <laughs> because that's, if that's your no, players are okay with true. it, by all means, torture them by giving them a Sympathetic Villain. <laughs> them yeah, I think them. as a story point, it's pretty cool, especially if you've gone over in Session Zero, like whether or not you're allowed to include political intrigue in the world or not. Uh, I, I think it's fine. People are as, ready for it. As minor villains, I think they can be very satisfying. Because a sympathetic villain, either the PCs end up having to take him out, but he's not the big problem, uh, because he's the inept sympathetic villain, right? Or the ineffectual. Or as somebody that gets turned, because players love converting a bad guy to their cause. That's that's rewarding. That's fun. And as a GM, don't make it easy, but there's no reason to fight it. Anything the players are going to have fun with... <laughs> that makes I don't it anyway, because that just means you could bring a bigger, badder person up over there yeah. that you guys combined then have to take out. If yeah, I yeah. if I present a party with um, a an inept, sympathetic villain that they can recruit, it's going to be as the campaign is winding down because I do not want to be an NPC. I hate it so much. <laughs> I do not want to play your character. No, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. NPCs are tricky because I don't, um, as a practice, I don't run NPCs with a party. But I do like, you know, developing a herd of uh, contacts and connections that come back again and again and again. Because that creates so much engagement with the world. And if you make it somebody who's tied to the story, like, for example, a converted villain, it gives you a lot of room to work with. Now, I am running, like, a game... The other the other kind of NPC I find fun to kind of invoke is I am running a game where the party... Currently, this worked out really nice because the party split up. It's a four-person game, and they're two and two right now in different geographic locations. Uh, because I'm that DM who doesn't mind splitting the party. I think it's great story fodder, as long as you can manage to tell the story in a way that remains engaging and entertaining to everybody. Well, the party had already picked up a small group of NPCs who are follower types. You know, uh, there's the hero worshiper, you know, who who's modeling themselves after somebody else. There's a kid that they rescued. And then says, so they're not like big contributing parts of the, they're not, they're not going to be somebody that really, that makes the difference in like decision making or, or battles or anything like that. They're often, as often as not, there's somebody who has to be protected or, or whatever. But uh, as they matured and got a couple levels, you know, I keep them obviously lower level in the party by, a st- by a, at least a couple levels, even for the best of them. The uh, they they become an option now when the party is split up for players who aren't involved with that group to play NPCs of the other group ah. when they're separated, Brilliant. and uh, it's working. You know, and and that's another thing. Sometimes players don't really get into that because it's not their character, so they just don't care. It's not fun. But you know, with a small group where we have a lot of chance to kind of let people shine, I've had I've had less problems with it. Richard, are you and, muted? No. Oh, okay. No, he just, he's just, I just didn't feel like interrupting. He, he's, he was speaking Richard in the background. Okay. I Which thought I missed something listeners and I was worried. I, I think <laughs> listeners tune in for my nonverbal communication skills. <laughs> Are you sure? You're just lovely. I haven't Lo- heard a radio. single complaint. Perfect radio. So, <laughs> what I like to see, 
especially with things like the My Little Pony game or settings like um, we had two, Wild Beyond the Witchlight or... Um, two Tales of Stestria games at the end of the con. Yeah, so with those sorts of settings, I'd like to see the uh, parties come up against NPC foils. So like uh, other groups mm-hmm. in the school or other sets of ponies that are adventuring. Rivals. Yeah, the foil mm-hmm. rival. Instead of like the BBEG, you have the foil rivals following you through a campaign. And that's exciting. And it also can give like a quick one shot of playing the rivals instead of the, NP- uh-huh. uh, instead of the PCs. And uh, which I like is really that. fun. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I thought was cool with um, the, uh, I think it was the Zeitgeist campaign, there was a period there when the characters were at a kind of a medium level. They had interacted with regularly other NPCs who were associated in kind of the same, because they were part of like the Royal Homeland Constabulary. So there were other NPCs that were either part of the Constabulary or that they dealt with regularly, or were um, somehow attached to those PC, those NPCs. And so there was a point at which in one game there was so much happening in the city that the adventure scenario I was working with kind of broke it down to where the PC the players played those NPCs for a while. Um, like for a session. And then it'd go back and forth. And they were a little lower level and they had different different parts of the story going on. And the, and the play, PCs got to be involved in making decisions about that. The regular PCs did because they were higher rank or something. You know, so I mean... It was really kind of cool to see the way they handled all that. But one of the reasons the writer did that was because he wanted there to be an encounter where he they, they had a chance, a very good chance that they all died. So it allowed him to put the players in a position where they, you know, their chance of, of, of avoiding a TPK was kind of low. And if it happened, it wasn't their characters. So, you know, it allowed them to set up the villain in that scenario as somebody that the PC, the players really hated it. <laughs> Because they just got slaughtered by the guy. Now, in my group, it didn't quite work out that way because they were they were canny and they survived. Now, I don't know if Richard, you were part of the campaign at that point or not. Um, yeah, I don't think I was with the point. with the crime boss and everything that they had to deal with. Who took um, what's his name's arm and all that? Nope, that was um, yeah. I think nope. it was I think it was like the adventure right before you joined. Yeah, I think. But something. it was it was crazy nasty and it was really cool the way it was presented because there were there were enough uh, NPCs to go around to make it uh, fun and people kind of got to pick who they wanted to play. Consequently, uh, had a little bit of choice on it. But that's always a, you know, it's it's a great storytelling tactic. You know, it gives you more, um, and it gives you more engagement again with the setting, you know, because they're they're engaging with things that aren't the regular characters that are part of the world and part of the story in a way that they influence, you know. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, mostly, go ahead. Here's my pitch for sympathetic villain, right? Gotcha. You got your rival foil party, okay? Mm-hmm. The player characters end up being the sympathetic villain in the end, but the rival foil gives them a chance to be redeemed. I like it. Then we know we are the villains all along the way, because that's just <laughs> how we are. We're murder hobos, we're, we're terrible. We the really are the villains. All, all but, the deaths. <laughs> but with the that foil party, with the rival, maybe we can become the good guys. That we accidentally killed it. at fifth level. Whoops. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> Foiled again! <laughs> I think Strixhaven would be kind of cool. That's a neat setting uh, for, for D&D. Uh, of course, it's the Harry Potter nerd in me that really wants to do that because it's got that magical school kind of vibe, you know. But And there's so much entertainment out there that's built on that model. I want to see um, a Call of Cthulhu magic school setting, like 
You're doing Strixhaven, <laughs> right. but in Call of Cthulhu. I was just thinking that Where magic East is Texas. likely to drive you mad, whatever yeah, you do. So. <laughs> I, I've always wanted to delve deeper into the East Texas uh, University, whatever that is, ETA, for yeah. Suede. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of wish I'd backed that now when it came up. I, I wasn't terribly interested in it because, uh, I, I mean, everything I do ends up being a little bit horror. But it's unintentional. Yeah. So sure, like it's straight not. up horror settings. So you're just horrible. <laughs> mm. It's just yeah. I feel I feel weird about it. I am backing the new horror companion. They 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 have a Kickstarter going right now uh, for the horror companion because they've been doing um, Pinnacle. If you're a Savage Worlds fan, you probably already know. But Pinnacle's been doing Game Changer uh, campaigns, their own version of Kickstarter through their own site for their suede companions since the new rule set came out. They did it for the superheroes campaign, which I, I now have on my shelf, which is a nice, very nice book. And they did it for the fantasy campaign, which we've got the PDF now, but I still haven't got the book book, uh, which is brilliant and, and borrows a lot from the stuff they did for their Pathfinder uh, license, all that. But anyway, they decided to do the horror campaign for some reason on Kickstarter, which you know, obviously they do a lot of their stuff on Kickstarter, but it kind of surprised me. But they're bundling it with the, do you know what it's called? Something middle school or something? Pinebox middle school. It's, I just pulled it up again. Pinebox middle school. <laughs> so it's kind of like, it's, it's the, the kind of the kids on bikes kind of, you know, era element of horror, you know, the Stranger Things inspired kind of horror that sounds really fun <laughs> i gotta admit but i i don't really think i want to spend the money on both uh, because you can on the kickstarter obviously they package it up so you get really nice discounts if you do but it was 40 dollars so just for the horror companion <laughs> and i want that physical copy of the book on my shelf because i do a lot of savage worlds at cons and so i want all those books with me when i do that stuff do you take mm-hmm. your do you take all your books with you to cons or just the savage world one I usually don't run D&D at cons. If I do, I will run it from my laptop with all the tools that I have there, honestly. Um, most people that play D&D already have what they need a lot of times. Savage Worlds, I still am, end up showcasing a lot. Like, I'm running two games, two Savage Worlds games at Midwest Game Fest the first weekend of December in Independence, Missouri. And so far, there's like 230 games on the schedule, and I'm the only one running Savage Worlds so far. Really? I know Peter's going to schedule some games. Oh, I'm sure he's going You should come. I need to <laughs> be need able to Savage afford representations. <laughs> Um, if I had monies, I would. I can, I can go to conventions and be the only one running Praxis games. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. What you've done? Yep. Yeah. Um, you want to come out to the con with us, Midwest? You'd, I don't know if you'd probably have to be able to drive up there, but who are you offering? You, J- Jess, you. Oh. Help us with the tea booth and everything. Heck yeah, okay. Wait, where is it? What are we doing? Uh, it's in Kansas City. <laughs> okay. So Independence, Missouri. It's the first weekend of December, so it's about it's a few weeks off yet. We've got an 11 and a half hour drive, I think, from where I am. So, I, yeah, I'd, I'd, even if we wanted to deviate through and pick you up, it'd be impossible because yeah. we're going to need the space in the car. And yeah. you usually like having your own vehicle anyway. Yeah. Uh, I love, I love running uh, booths. I'm surprised. Like, why can't I just be a vendor? But I, I would never start my own business. But man, I love running booths. You're good at it. And obviously, Jonica loves having you there. And so, so if you can make it up there, um, I'll get you a badge. And uh, we got a hotel room already. So heard it here to, first, uh, folks. Do you want to come see me? <laughs> yeah, well, we're getting Jess out for a con because she missed Tsunami Con. I did. I was sick with the COVID. Oh, I'm glad so you're better now. COVID. Thank you. I <laughs> so I'm fully inoculated uh, because I knew that if I get sick, it's going to hit me hard and for yeah. too long. And it does. It hits me so hard. Even um, two of the 
uh, what, three or four, four shots. Two of the four shots that I got for inoculation make me sit, made me sick enough that I couldn't eat. And that's how I spent most of COVID too. I, I couldn't eat. I was, I was so sick. I had fevers for days. I would think I was five days of a fever up over a hundred, oh. sometimes up to a hundred and, uh, three. I went, went by to see her um, and pick up some games the morning uh, TsunamiCon opened and uh, you know, looking uh, I mean, from across the room all huddled in a blanket and on the couch and just kind of looked completely miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, heart went out to you hard. It's like we, we really wanted you to be there yeah. because obviously the convention wasn't I was the same with Hacha. I was so hyped up for it because I was going to get to do like a lot of the game oh. library stuff and mm-hmm. I was going to get to play games with people and teach games and stuff. I so let down getting sick. It was bad. Well, you can do that stuff next year yeah. if you feel if you feel so inclined. Because I will will definitely need the help. And uh, um, even if even if somehow Jason is able to make it next year, if his uh, schedule doesn't stop him and uh, can kind of handle the library for us, we always need more people in that library. Mm-hmm. And yes. uh, we we did great this year. Our volunteers were were, were wonderful. They worked very hard and. Um, uh, Dave, Dave, uh, damn it, Dave stepped up and, and did a lot of stuff to help out with uh, the library and uh, a couple of the other guys that I just met that morning nice. that were, you know, just uh, assigned to to the library to help out. That's what they volunteered to do. And I was super, super thankful of the volunteers that, that popped up because all of it was last minute. Lynn put together a volunteer uh, army at the last, you know, in the last few days before the con because we didn't have enough people. Volunteers are so important for live events. Just yeah. absolutely life. And a couple of them, a couple of them were there just because they were friends, you know, of of Lynn or or somebody else there, and were like, yeah, we'd love to help out. Whatever. They weren't interested necessarily in the convention, and I appreciated that all the more. Consequently, you know, because they obviously didn't weren't getting anything special out. Of a couple of the volunteers were like, "Oh yeah, no, I've always want, I've wanted to come to Tsunami Con, but I never, I don't have the money." And like, this is a great opportunity to you know be here all weekend and and play games and stuff and and not have a, to buy a badge. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly the point, you know, rewarding you for putting in the time. Uh, we couldn't have done it, you know that. And and Lynn, um, Lynn messed up her back and like on Friday afternoon had to go to the hospital, Ugh. and we she wasn't back the rest of the convention. Uh, we we didn't you know Jesse didn't make it. We only found that out a couple of days before. Uh, my, my wife couldn't be there, so we didn't have the tea booth or anything this year, and uh, the tea party and all that stuff didn't happen. And there were a lot of people, obviously, were disappointed about that. Uh, Sean wasn't going to make it. You know, there was stuff going on in in his life that was making that complicated. But when he found out we were so thin on volunteers, he texted me Friday morning and said, "I am on my way. We'll figure it out." You know, and uh, huge. You know, and I I lay I rely so much on Sean and Eli and Lynn and Toby and and Toby stuck out the whole weekend, but he was stuck to the desk most of the weekend up front. And uh, um, Jason and Jesse and you know and everybody that is a, a big contributor, of course, and helps make it happen. It was it was a successful event this year. It wasn't uh, maybe as many people as I would have liked to see coming out of COVID. We weren't necessarily surprised, but uh, you know, I it didn't cost me a bunch of money. So <laughs> ultimately, that's good enough for me. Moving forward, we'll do bigger and better next year, like we always try to do. So. But uh, yeah, come out and see uh, see uh, at least Jesse and I at a uh, Midwest Game Fest though, and Jonica. Jonica will be there selling tea. Your chance to stop in and uh, see her. So, uh, anything else you guys want to talk about? I'll let you guys get on with your day. No, I've I think I've made all you, my points. <laughs> kept, 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 <laughs> Vanessa, you were very, very. Uh, what's the term? Verbose. Of I appreciate course. it. <laughs> I, I tried, man. I tried. 
No, your contributions all matter. I appreciate it. Uh, Richard was like, you didn't give me any time to prepare for this. I didn't look anything up. I don't know what we're going to talk about. I'm like, yeah, you'll figure shit out. And of course, he, you know, great points. Always. Yeah, I won't shut up. I'm sorry. You're sorry. I won't shut up, and I'm not sorry. Wait, I didn't hear your pitch for a sympathetic villain, Richard. Oh, uh, put him on the spot, why don't you? Uh, uh, no, no pitch. Thank you for listening to... <laughs> I, Eric? Oh, no, no. He, uh, sorry, oh. he's oh. sympathetic. Oh. sympathetic. Oh. Sorry, sorry. My bad. Oh. Wait, 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 wait a damn minute. made it harsher. <laughs> Wow. Um, I'm very sympathetic. To, My backstory is super tragic. To be fair, I've been working on I'm I'm trying to make this stupid choose your own adventure type game setup and I've got a background and I've got some plots running around my head and I can't get it to snap and I've been trying to take notes during this session to come up with things so, so I can make it write snap. some sort of backstory to make it snap. There That's you go. awesome. Tragic backstory is a great way to make a villain matter, uh, I guess. No, make him have a perfect backstory. Just perfect backstory. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> They'll have Absolutely a totally no explanation backstory. for the villainy at all. Because it's I like know they, my they friend group, and their players will parents. bring their own horrible backstories. <laughs> we don't it's the PCs the that have the terrible, tragic backstories. <laughs> is it any surprise it's like, who the it's villain like really the is? It's the reverse of the Superman, uh, Spider-Man from uh, Electric Company, where all the villains had weird, tragic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So, so in short, play Dungeons and Dragons, a game where you get to be the bad guy as much as you want. But you're pretty you sure you're the up, good guy. You, you, exactly. You get to beat up on everything you run across. You get to steal their treasure. You get to be motivated by money, greed, status, and think you're the hero. Yep. <laughs> Most of the time, yeah. Something. Something. <laughs> so maybe our next show should be on sympathetic heroes. Uh, let's go ahead and... <laughs> It sounds like you said a unicorn. I think I did. Yeah. Is that, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, living in the basement. So uh, go ahead and uh, let us know if there's any ideas you have that you want to share. You know about this or anything else to talk about, obviously. But I'd, I'd love to hear stories about this if you got them. Uh, you can drop us a line at feedback at prismaticsunami.com. That's feedback at prismaticsunami.com if you still use email. Um, otherwise, you can always drop by our Discord server. I think uh, you know you could TikTok me, but it won't do me any good because I'm old. Uh, go by Discord. Drop you that know, we have an invite on our page. You know, drop in, be part of the community, part of the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, Going to go ahead and get on and out of here. Uh, thank you for listening to episode number two hundred and oh god, I lost it. Two hundred and Joe's not here, man. <laughs> second, second, second. I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah, Joe's not here to to instruct me. You're right, <laughs> dude. Just when you needed that in life. Um, I've got it right here on the Discord page. 282. God, I was right. I should have just Wait, said Wait, I already it. did a 282. A this lot. is a 282. No, I recorded a 282 and uploaded it on 925. Oh, no. Uh, that was probably the last one. Then. Oh, <laughs> uh, we had to we had to cut some shows that we recorded because uh, TsunamiCon came and went. Oh. <laughs> shows that we were talking mostly about TsunamiCon coming okay. up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we lost one in there. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah. uh, Gamers Anonymous. My name is Eric. I'm Rich. I'm Vanessa. I'm Jess. Have a good night, everybody.